Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Dr. Mark Williams. And Mark has an extensive background as a professor of cognitive neuroscience with over 25 years of experience conducting behavioral and brain imaging research focused on how we interact with each other, how we learn, and how we think. He's taught the fundamentals of neuroscience to thousands of students and has published more than 70 articles in high-impact international journals and has been awarded numerous high-profile fellowships and grants, worked at MIT as well as other universities in Australia. But most recently, and very excitingly, Mark released his book, The Connected Species, How the Evolution of the Human Brain Can Save the World. And he continues to run programs on the neuroscience of learning and emotions related to how you can hack your habits, how our brains create our reality, and the impact of modern technology on our brains. So this is a a lot of information that I'm super excited to dive into, but really excited to get to know Mark a little better as well. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks a lot for having me, Nikki. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our first conversation was really insightful to me. I actually have referenced it quite a few times particularly the part where you had made a comment. And I think it was, it wasn't even necessarily super substantial in the context of what we were talking about. But you said, you know, I've seen thousands and thousands of brains and something went off in my head. And I was like, it's just something that so many people can't say, you know, so it's, <laughs> you you have a skill set that I think a lot of us probably wouldn't ever find ourselves, you know, really tapping into, but you've, you've taken this wealth of knowledge that you have and transformed that into not just your career, but these ways to try to help the world. And so I thought that we could kind of jump off with you sharing a little bit about how you actually found yourself in a career in neuroscience to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a straight journey by any means. Um, Yeah, I I grew up in a small country town. I I wasn't studious at all. I was quite a rat bag when I was at school. Um, My mother had mental health issues uh, and I hated school. My principal actually told me that I would be dead or in prison by the time I was 25 when I was about 16. So I wasn't, you know, one of those kids that went, oh, I want to become a neuroscientist at all. I had no um, dreams or aspirations back then. Uh, it wasn't until I was 25 that I, two, two of my friends had drug overdoses and that led me to go back to school because I just wanted to change something about where I was headed and my life. Um, and a, a, a teacher there convinced me that I was more intelligent than I thought I was and I had more to offer than I thought I had and convinced me that I should go to university. So I enrolled in university and did a bachelor's degree of science. Um, and I think I chose... I did a double major in psychology and in uh, physiology, which is what led me to neuroscience. Uh, And I think I chose that because I wanted to know more about me um, and I wanted to know more about why I'd done the things I'd done and why I was hanging out with the people I was hanging out with. And so that's sort of how I got into the whole neuroscience game. 
I love that. I feel like what you really touch on there too is the importance of looking inward, but you did that in a way also that was really psychologically based, right? And so I think having that interest and that desire to say not just, okay, I want to understand, you know, looking back at my own life, but to really understand at the core of humanity, why we make the choices that we make or why we do the things that we do or feel the things that we feel. So when you got to that place where you recognize, you know, I don't want my life to go this direction anymore. I've seen people around me have these downfalls. What was it that like ultimately led you to this place of the, I guess, the depth of the career that you have today? Um. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I think um, I probably made a lot of mistakes when I was younger and I wanted, I, I was almost a wanting to make up for that um, and I probably hurt a lot of people during that period um, and I wanted to make up for that. Um, but I also noticed that so many people had, had made efforts to change who I was and to help me that I really wanted to give back as well. And that whole pay for pay forward idea. Um, and so, yeah, I've always had, well, no, I haven't always had, I, I, since I went back to university, I've had a real drive to, um, to help. Um, and so I, you know, when I was at university, I volunteered, um, in a hospice. It was, it was an end of life hospice. So it was a, the only patients that were there in the last two weeks of life um, were in that hospice. Um, and that was an amazing experience, but it was an opportunity for me to give back, but it was also an opportunity for me to to observe, you know, people in that last two, two, two weeks of life, um, which was fascinating um, because it made me really realise, when, when you're confronted with that, you really realise that, that, that when we get to the end of our lives, it's not, that we made a lot of money or that we spent a lot of time at work or that we were, um, you know, <laughs> good at our jobs that we regret or um, that we think about. It's it's the time we spent with loved ones and it's the time we spent with people around us and it's the impact that we had on other people that is really what we, we reflect on in that period. And so um, I think that had a big change in me. I, I was also worked... Um, with teenagers um, at that stage, um, I was in a house that took teenagers who had been in and out of juvenile detention and stuff and who also had autism um, and had a lot of issues around that. And I, I saw how much potential these kids had if you just gave them the opportunities. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a whole bunch of different things. But it was always people around me that, I, you know, I wanted to help, Yeah. Well, it feels like that just meshes perfectly with the fact that you would want to write this book about human connection and the importance of the impact that it has. Something that I found really fascinating, um, probably like two years ago or so, I was listening to this audiobook, What Happened to You by uh, Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry. Have you heard of this book? I have, yeah. I haven't read it. I keep hearing about it and I've got to get yeah. it and read it because so, I haven't read it. <laughs> so I would I I recommend to people the audiobook because I think that um it adds something to have the dialogue about it. It almost feels now I didn't read it, so I can't say, but it feels right to have it be a conversation. But what I love about it and what I'm I hear you speaking to as well is that 
at the end, and this is a spoiler alert, I guess, but it's also, you know, information that's out there for people is how human connection is really the most, um, most valuable, most successful way of helping us heal through trauma. And I find it really interesting because it seems obvious, right? Like we, we know that the connection that we create with other people, the energy that we exchange with other people impacts who we are, how we are, et cetera. But we sort of do that at a very subconscious level and to have it really put to words, backed by science and say, Hey, no, you really need this. This is something that functionally as human beings is mission critical to our success. It really, I think shifts the perspective. And so could you share a little bit about the connected species, this book that you've written and what you mean by how the evolution of the human brain can save the world? Because I mean, that's a, that is a loaded statement and I am here for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big statement. It is a big statement. Um, to be honest, the, the, um, the connected species was my idea, The the publishers changed my other section of that title because mine was too boring so <laughs> they made it a bigger statement um it was basically what i was trying to say but they made it much clearer um i'll just put that out there um yeah we have evolved over you know millions of years uh to be connected so we're not the strongest animal out there and we're not the fastest animal out there and um, we don't have the largest brain of all the animals out there the reason we became the alpha species is because of our connection because of our relationships with each other and the fact that we help each other and we feel safe when we're with each other and because we can do stuff together and we collaborate with each other and so we have this um relatively big brain um because we needed to be able to communicate with each other and collaborate with each other and to understand how each of us is feeling so that we get along and we actually feel connected with each other. So actually sitting down and chatting to someone activates more of your brain than anything else you can do. So we know our brains, just like our muscles, are use it or lose it. So you've got to exercise your brain regularly to keep it healthy. And the best exercise you can do is to sit down and chat with someone. Perfect. Um, which, I, I can excuse uh, myself for not getting to the gym these past couple of weeks, just recording yeah, podcasts instead. It's better. <laughs> exactly. We need to actually do that. We need to sit down and actually chat with someone. And it's now been shown if you've got close people or people you trust and you sit down and chat with them on a regular basis, you can increase your lifespan by 10 to 15 years. Um, it decreases the likelihood of you getting Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases later on. And it wow. increases... Yeah, it also decreases the likelihood that you'll have mental health issues now, today. Um, so, and it is the best, as you said, it's the best cure for mental health issues that we are currently have. It's better than any drug on the market at the moment. He's actually just sitting down and chatting to someone, which is why, you know, psychologists and therapists sit down and chat with people because it's the best thing you can actually do for your brain health. So we need to be doing more of it, but sadly... We're doing less of it now than we've ever done in the past. So we spend less time actually sitting down face to face and chatting with people than we ever have because of the fact that we're always on devices and because of the fact that we're be being disconnected from each other because of this so-called social media, which is not social at all. It's advertising um, and it's just advertising um, and it's nothing social about it. We need to actually be social because we're social animals. Um, and, and that means actually catching up with people and actually spending time with them. So something that you said that I'm interested in um, leaning into a little bit more is 
the idea of connecting with people, sitting face to face with them, because when we first spoke, you said something that I found really interesting. And that was, you know, what we're doing right now, this interfacing counts, right? It's not that we're, we're, we're engaging, we're connecting, it's happening and it does help, but there is something to be said for the more significant impact that it has when you are really in person with somebody. So can you share a little bit more about the science behind that and the elements of connectivity that are important to have in person? Yeah. So when we meet face to face, in all societies, we have some appropriate way of actually touching each other. And the reason we touch, um, so, so in stoic societies, we, we all shake hands and, you know, that's the appropriate way to do it. In in Europe, of course, they'll kiss each other on the cheeks. Um, in even the Inuits, because they're all covered up, they'll rub noses because it's the only bit of skin that's actually showing. Uh, and the reason we do that is we have sea fibres um, on our skin and our sea fibres are there only for touch and they only activate to touch and that activates an area of our brain which releases oxytocin and oxytocin makes us more willing to actually connect to the other person so we actually get this really warm feeling of connection when we touch each other appropriately of course um <laughs> and, and that's really really important for us to connect because it opens us up and makes us willing to actually feel as though we can connect and we can trust this person and we don't get that online obviously we also get um serotonin when we're face-to-face -face because we have a mirror neuron system which actually activates to us when we're actually face-to-face -face with someone. So if we were face-to-face, -face, you'd see my whole body rather than just my, my head, um, and you would mimic what I'm actually doing. So if I slumped over um, because I was feeling depressed, your mirror system would activate and therefore activate the areas of your motor system, which would make you also feel like slumping over so that you would understand that I'm feeling depressed because I'm slumping over. And you would mimic that. You would also slump over slightly to say, hey, I understand how you're feeling. And we respond to that automatically. And so there's a whole bunch of endorphins and neurotransmitters that are released in relation to that as well, which we don't get when we're online. And then we also have eye gaze, which is really important for communication. When we're online, we're looking at each other, but you don't know what I'm looking at if I look somewhere else. So if I look over there, you don't know that I'm what I'm looking at. And right. it just seems weird to you, right? And, and and that sets off areas of our brain which go, this person's not actually attending to me or they're not actually interested in what I'm doing. Because when you're face-to-face, -face, you have really interesting gaze cues with these, what we call them, uh, which tell the other person I'm listening to you or I, I think that person wants to talk now or I want to talk now or and all of those things which are really important, which we don't get when we're online because we're not, the, the gaze isn't right. And, and we start feeling um, awkward about the situation. And often there'll be multiple people online and they're all looking at you and you're looking at all of them and you don't realise you're looking at all of them. Right. And that makes it even more complicated and weirder as well. And so we get really, really odd uh, information automatically in our brains when when those things happen. So, yeah, there's a, this whole bunch of neurotransmitters that we don't get when we connect online that we do get when we are actually face-to-face, -face, which are really important for us. Yeah, and something that you said that uh, really prompted me to think about my wife and I when we first met. So we met online and we were talking for a couple of months before we were actually able to meet in person. And one of the things that she said was, I just can't wait to actually look in your eyes to actually know what it's like to look in your eyes because it's like when you go deadpan into a camera, right? It's not the same it's thing. Weird. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. And so we've gotten to your point used to just not having that direct interaction. And so there is just so much power in that moment when, especially if you meet people online and then you meet them in person, I find that that is just such an astronomical, like physical response where you're just like, oh my gosh, like you're here, you're in person, you're present and you're in three dimensions. I can touch you, like you said, appropriately always. And I, I realized too, that one of the things that I gravitate towards, like I always say, I'm like, I'm such a touchy person. You know, if I'm speaking to somebody and I'm engaged, you know, I'm like touching an arm and, or even, I mean, just using my hands constantly anyway, clearly. But I think the other thing that is really interesting about too, is, you know, some people are huggers and some people aren't. And so it's, I mean, I guess this is a question to you if you happen to have an answer. Um, is there something that sort of defines like that desire to have that type of connection for certain people versus other people where it's like the physical touch is more of a sensory experience for some people? So there are disorders. So there's some, some subgroups within, say, autism um, where they have a, a different response to touch than what the average person does have but if you're talking about the average person um then we we all have that oxytocin really so we would all benefit from touch and more touch and actually yeah. cuddling each other and doing those things and we would get huge benefits from that some people have learned that it's not appropriate or some people have learned that we don't they don't like it or they shouldn't do it or it's not manly or it's not whatever that's been learned and it's not what our nature is our nature is to touch because it's so important for us as a species to touch because it it bonds us mm -hmm. and it creates a feeling of and that's why, you know, parents, you know, brush their kids' hair or kids love cuddling when they're babies. I mean, babies um, and mothers who, who cuddle early, as early as possible, the, the baby then sleeps better, the mother's more likely to um, produce more milk better, the mother's less likely to have um, postnatal depression. I mean, there's a huge number of really, really important benefits just from a mother being given the baby as soon as the baby's born because of that touch that actually happens when that when that occurs. So touch for us as a species is really important and we learn and we're taught that we shouldn't touch um and that's why some people some people are more likely not to want to cuddle but if you actually cuddle them they're actually going to like it appropriately of course and yeah you can convince them that it's good blanket uh, statement that this like is all it. consenting within appropriate <laughs> yeah within those appropriate boundaries of what people actually like but it's learned it's not that those people who don't like it, it it's a learned experience. And I didn't. I, I, I grew up in a very stoic family um, and my father didn't touch um, and you shook hands and that's it and da-da-da-da-da. My wife grew up in a very different family um, and everyone cuddled. And so when I first met her, she was just cuddly and, and, and I loved it. And it was like, wow, this is a whole new world to me. And I, you know, I ask people now, you know, to shake hands or, you know cuddle and it's you get such a buzz from it and it's so important for us to do more of it if we can yeah absolutely we'll ask yes <laughs> oh and and i totally relate to that um from your wife's side of it probably because i grew up in a family where i mean there was a lot of hugging um and i just even when i was a kid my mom would like rub our backs or or scratch our backs or something if we were watching a tv show play with our hair or whatever and i 
remember when I first went to meet my wife's parents, um, I was like, I'm a hugger. <laughs> and I went in for this hug with her mom. And I was like, man, I fixated on that for weeks afterwards. Cause I was like, I don't think she was ready for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just came in a little hot there, but it was <clears throat> one of those things where my wife, Nicole said to me, she's like, we hug more now than we ever have because you've come into our lives and have brought hugging into this family, you know? And I think for me, it is a, it is a sense of bonding a sense of community it's like i'm not going out and just hugging every random person but i do feel inclined when i see people that i love that i that i have a close relationship with or i feel even if it's somebody i've just recently met but i know that there's a good connection there there's so much power in that type of touch and that ability to feel the energy with somebody that i think it can kind of change even and strengthen those dynamics that you have with people you you honestly may not know that well and one of the things that i found really fascinating i can't remember the statistic right now but it was something like the there's sort of a number of hugs that are maintenance and then like a number of hugs per day that are for for growth or sort of exceeding what your standard fare would be with that. And I, I am that person. I'm like, if we can get 12 hugs in a day, great. Let's hug 12 times. I don't care if that's good for my brain. That's good for my body. Let's do it. Because it's something that, you know, a lot of people, as you said, with the amount of devices that we have, like we're, we're entrenched in whatever's happening on the screen and we pull ourselves out of the present moment. And I do find that something like hugging or hand holding while you're walking or something like that, it, it grounds you in the present moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a great indication of how important it is, is, you know, if someone's crying, our first want then is to actually cuddle them, right, to hug totally. them because they're crying and that makes them feel safe. I mean, that, if nothing else, really indicates to you how important that is, that process of actually cuddling or hugging someone because that's our first response when someone actually is in stress or in yeah. distress. Um, it's so, so interesting. To think of it like that too, Mark, what you point out, and I love the lens through which you look at this because it comes back to really the evolutionary side of humanity where, you know, these things are pre-wired in us, they're there. And one of the biggest challenges that we face as human beings is neglecting that connection to that original humanity. When I was preparing for this conversation, I was looking at your website and you have the idea of like creating a brain healthy world and how we can improve connection that then boosts learning and productivity and well-being. And so it's like, these are not just superficial statements of like, you should hug people more or you should try to connect with people more. This actually improves your quality of life. As you said, I mean, your length of life, things, things that we, I think, distract ourselves from so much. So when you think about how the world is today and sort of the disparity in a lot of virtual connection versus in-person connection. What do you see as a good way to help heal that part of our humanity and bring it back to really that core of who we are? Yeah, I imagine think... some of this is in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the book, every chapter has a tip as to what you can actually do in changing your life and actually oh, make that. yourself more connected. So it is a very practical book as well as being you know, based in all the science. But uh, one of the things is just organising time to actually spend time with friends, right, is actually just go, okay, every day I schedule something every day where I'm spending time with somebody outside of my, you know, the people I live with, Um 
a face to face. It's coffee or it's a surf or it's a go for a walk with the, our dogs or whatever it happens to be. And and I think we all need to do that. We we a lot of us all focus, which is why I talk about brain health rather than than mental health. You know, a lot of us all focus on our physical health, um, and, and we'll schedule in an hour to go for a run or go to the gym or whatever it is. But we're not doing the same when it comes to our brain health, and and that's really important to think about. And I want to shift. The conversation from mental health because when we think about mental health it's often when we're in crises right it's only when we're actually get to that point that we have actually got to do something about it but if we all kept our brains healthy now we wouldn't get into those crises or much less likely to get into those crisis situations and so I want us to think about we've got to be, you know, physically healthy, but we've also got to be brain healthy. And that takes a little bit of effort, but it's worthwhile because you'll feel so much better. Um, and just like you get those endorphins, those buzzes from doing exercise, you also get the buzzes from being brain healthy by actually spending time with people, by looking after your brain, by going for a walk, by uh, spending time relaxing occasionally, um, taking time out, right? We're all busy now, but we're getting bugger all done um, because we're less productive today than we've ever been in the past because we're all, again, treating our brains really badly by doing this switching because we can't multitask, but what we're doing is constantly switching. So we're losing heaps and heaps of time because every time, which is enough, Another big issue with our current society is is we, we're constantly getting distracted. But every time you get distracted, you actually lose 90 seconds of your time. So each time something actually distracts you, such as you get a buzz or a ding or whatever, or someone knocks on a door or whatever, you, or if you move from, you know, writing a, a piece to your um, email or go from your email to Facebook or you go from Facebook to a podcast. Every time you do that, you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing. So every time we're switching, because our working memory is very limited, which is sort of our consciousness, um, that's it's limited, but we have to hold stuff in that working memory long enough that it gets moved to a temporary store so that it can then be moved to our long-term memory. So if you're doing one thing and you're concentrating on that, then all that information is being transferred to temporary store and then into long-term memory. If you're switching from one task to another, then each time you switch, the information wasn't in there long enough. And so therefore you lose on average 90 seconds of what you were doing, which is why, which is why when you are uh, say uh, watching a movie and somebody uh, interrupts the movie, then it's not that you forget what happens from that point on you will actually forget the last 90 seconds of what was on the movie so you will then usually ask the person beside you hey what you know what just happened or whatever it was because you lose that last 90 seconds so we've got to remember that every time we're doing it every time we're switching from one thing to another or whatever ever it happens to be um or every time our phone dings or every time um you know uh, facebook notifies us that we got a like we're losing 90 seconds of our time that day. And so therefore we're getting less done every day because of all that time we're losing every day. Um, and we need to get that time back. Wow. Well, that tidbit of information is going to propel me into a different set of habits, Mark. Um, <laughs> you know, when you mentioned that, like you're watching something on TV and you're like, oh, what just happened there? It's just, I mean, it's so relatable. I'm sure all of us have had that moment. But the thing that you touch on with that also is I consider just sort of my productivity having worked at varieties of businesses and thinking about when I'm the most productive. 
is usually not during my workday. It's during the non-meeting hours because what tends to happen is you are forced to context switch so much during the day because you have to check this email or something comes in and somebody needs something immediately. And so instead of giving people the time to be effective and and prioritize things in a way that's more useful and productive, we're forcing people to just constantly bounce between things, not recognizing that you're actually doing a disservice to your business and also to those people and their overall well-being, because let's just call that what it is, right? Like it's yeah. hard to context switch. I, I was diagnosed with ADHD like four-ish years ago, maybe. And I understand better how to navigate my own life because of that. But it took me up until mm, a month ago to find like the right system for me to force me to be accountable to like where I'm spending my time. And it is a lot of trial and error because we're not all the same. And so when businesses have this expectation that you can just turn on a dime, get back into it, it's not super realistic because we do all operate with different, um, you know, I just sort of brain um, architecture, I guess, but also our ability to focus might be very different overall because of how we um, consume information or learn information. So do you find that businesses often are sort of at the mercy of this like idea that we can multitask and then sort of missing the boat on where their productivity really is? Yeah, I think a lot of businesses don't realize the impact that the multitasking happens. And when you actually discuss it and explain, um, a, a lot of organizations will then change things so that things are better for the employees so they can be more productive, so they can get more stuff done, so they can go home earlier, right? Mm -hmm. We can actually decrease the amount of work with well, the amount of time we're spending working um, and being more productive, that's great for everybody because it not, not only does the business get more productivity out of you, you get more time with your family and with your friends and doing the stuff that we love. So um, once you sort of explain that, I mean, just simple things like uh, in, in Europe, a lot of countries in Europe now are making it illegal for companies to email their employees after hours um, and they can actually get fined for doing that because we know that productivity improves if you're not on emails after work, if you're only on emails, you know, during the nine to five or whatever it is you work, you know, seven to six or whatever it happens to be. Um, and if you then go away from that after that, but they found that they had to make it illegal um, because your CEOs and your managers and stuff were still emailing, but they were saying, oh, you don't have to actually reply. But of course, employees would see, oh, that's what they're doing. So therefore to become that, I have to do that as well. So they, they you know, cut it off from everybody. And that's had huge benefits for both brain health, but also productivity in those countries um, and within those organisations. It started within organisations and then sort of spread. So doing just simple things like that, giving people time off, but giving all everybody time off. Your CEO has to do it as well. Um, that after work, it's it's after work, right? It's not work time now. But we're now got this situation where you know everyone's answering emails twenty four hours a day, and they're looking at their teams or whatever it is that is online that they do, and, and, and so they're never getting any breaks from it. So therefore, they never get any reset time, right? And we need the reset time so we can go back stronger and harder the next day, um, which we don't get an opportunity to do these days, which means, again, it's infecting our productivity. Um, but also, yeah, organising things, because the, the 
tech companies know it, right? If you look at the way Google sets itself up, it has areas where you're not allowed to have devices so that you actually concentrate in those areas. So if you want to do deep work, you go to those areas so that you can do deep work and you can concentrate and you can get into the flow like you were saying you, you get when you're at home. Um, and then other areas which are collaborative and that's where you collaborate and then other areas where you might have to, you know, answer emails and stuff. But mm. do, setting up your organisation like that so that they can, people can move to areas where they've been productive and then move to other areas where they've been collaborative and move to other areas is really important because it, it allows employees to, yeah, to change what they're doing and then get into the flow. Um, and like you were saying, it, it depends on what you're doing, but it also depends on your situation. But by having different areas where you can do things, um, it becomes habitual, right? You know, if I'm going to go over there, then I'm going to get into this state of mind. Or if I'm going over there, I'm going to get into this state of mind. So again, you, you're better at it and you're more productive in those areas. Yeah, that's a really great point, Mark. I just thinking about because I've been working from home now for a bit, but I know that if I'm up in my office and I've got my second monitor and I'm all set up, I'm like, okay, I know this is going to be deep focused work. And then I take my laptop downstairs to my couch and I'm like, I'm doing as much mindless work as possible because I want a change of scenery and I don't want the stress of this is exactly what I have to do right now, but I can still be productive in a way that doesn't require me to be, you know, just totally honed in on it. And I think that you also really make an interesting point about the idea of how we need to separate ourselves from the work at times. And in particular, you were saying, you know, we all need time off. I think we all need time back, right? We all need time back so we can actually focus on these other parts, our brain health, our physical health, all of the things that we start to sacrifice in the interest of somebody else getting what they need from us. We start to compromise what we need from ourselves. And I'm curious because you mentioned collaboration and I love this. This is one of the things that just really stuck with me from our first conversation as well is how important that is as human beings, as social species. Do you find that the socioeconomic or sociopolitical circumstances that exist today are sort of debilitating us because there's such a discrepancy in terms of how how much time or energy people have to dedicate to connection because of that sort of like grind mentality where people are just pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah, I think it's pretty sad because I, I think we would be a lot, as I said, we'd be a lot more productive if we were given the time to actually collaborate and spend time with each other. And I think there's been multiple things that have driven that. But one of the big issues is that back in the 80s and 90s, and even the, well, late 70s, 80s and 90s, uh, there was this shift in our idea. So there was books written like Lord of the Flies and then there was movies like um, uh, Wall Street and stuff that greed is good. And there was this uh, several books written that discussed this idea that we're inherently evil, right? We're, we're actually nasty people who are all driving and competition's good and that we're all trying to become the alpha um, and we're all trying to do wrong by everybody else, which is complete nonsense, right? We're, we're actually, our brains are actually, our brain, when you look at the neuroimaging, um, there's some really cool studies which have shown when we're actually asked to do the wrong thing, when we're asked to do something negative against somebody else, a lot of our brain, the area of our brain 
um, activates, which is telling us, which which is in conflict. It's actually us going, hang on, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be evil. I don't want to be nasty. When we're actually asked to do the good, the right thing, much less of our brain is actually active. And, and so what our brain's actually doing is that's the normal state. Our normal state of reacting to situations is to do the right thing by other people, to actually be nice to people, not be evil. This whole idea that we're, we're inherently evil is wrong and we're actually not inherently evil. We actually want to collaborate with each other. We actually want to spend time with each other. We actually want to help other people. And so we need to get rid of this idea that we're all fighting to be the best and we're all competing against each other, which is really negative way of looking at things and change the way we do business and the way we interact with each other and realise that we're, we're all actually um, after collaboration are all after being nice to each other um but of course everyone's scared of that now because everyone thinks that the other person's going to do them wrong so therefore i have to protect what's mine and all the rest of it which which is silly because it's not actually the way we are by by nature and it's not the way we've evolved and so we've got to where we are now because of the collaborations but we, we're in the last you know 50 years or so we're doing a lot less of it and we're a lot less collaborative and we're a lot less connected than we were but we need to get back to that because that's what our brains want right that's what we actually want and what is going to spur us on to new heights of innovation creativity and all the rest of it yeah so something that struck me as you were saying that was when I think about how as human beings, we are just very capable of ignoring these opportunities to collaborate and create a better world for ourselves. I would say up until this point in this conversation, I would have been like, oh, well, that's sort of our reptilian brain thinking, well, it's a survival of the fittest thing, right? Like if, if you have it, then I can't have it and I need to have it. But what you're saying really is that that's sort of the learned behavior and that if we followed our more instinctive sense that we would probably feel more inclined to collaborate. Now, that's not to say there's not fight or flight and all of those things that happen in various circumstances, but in reality, it's more that the evolution of, you know, I mean, corporations, but not just corporations, but just sort of the way society has been built out has taught us that the competition is the way to success. And in reality, the collaboration is the way to success because you don't, uh, my wife and I were just saying this, right? If you want to go, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And it's like, that's the thing is, we're looking at the world right now and we're seeing just how much chaos there is. And the thing that gives me hope is what, when you see, you know, these people who are in power or circumstances that are just not being resolved because people are deciding not to fix problems that need to be fixed for the greater good. You know, it's these people who they're sort of isolated, whether it's like individuals or small groups of people. But then I look at the broader humanity and I think to myself, but that's not what we want. And I can see that. Like, I really have hope. I believe that there's power in numbers. I think the hardest part now is completely separate of the idea of connection in certain ways is that like, because you said, you know, greed drives it, right? Greed for money, greed for power. At the end of the day, the people who ultimately make these decisions, I imagine are probably pretty lonely people. People. Because if you had the connection, if you had the empathy, then it wouldn't be a question as to whether or not you would do more to help. And I, 
I struggle so much with this mark because I'm like, I can't understand it. I can't understand how you can have so much and not understand that it is like just the humane thing to do to take responsibility where you can or, or contribute where you can. And you see like, you know, toss some money here, toss some money there, volunteer for this, do that. But it's like, those are publicity stunts in so many cases versus like viscerally, you know, that it's the right thing to do. And I just have to hold on to the belief and the hope that we are at a point in time where a shift is happening that people understand, especially these younger generations. I feel like they're looking at us going, what the hell has happened here? <laughs> and <laughs> trying to figure that out. And that is why there's, I think, a lot of union among younger groups and trying to find a path forward because they are starting to see very clearly that this idea of go it alone, get ahead, climb on top of everybody else just really didn't net positive. Yeah, I think there, there is, I work a lot um, where I go into schools and work with um, the teenagers. And um, I, I do see a lot of teenagers out there who, who, especially when I chat to them about what we now know about the brain and stuff, they're, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's, you know, uh, and a lot of the issues um, that I might bring up, they'll go, oh, yeah, but that's, you know, you older people are worried about that, but we're not worried about that. It's like this whole different shift in in thinking around a lot of these issues, um, which I think is wonderful, and I hope, you know, that it'll continue that way and these guys guys and girls won't get jaded as they get older. Um, but you, you brought up something which I, I've got to address, which which is this idea that we have this reptilian brain in, inside our other brain, which is complete nonsense. I, it frustrates <laughs> the hell out of me when people talk about reptilian brain because we Thank don't you. have a reptilian brain. We've never had a reptilian brain. We, we are mammals. Um, and the first mammals that we came from, came, you know, appeared on on somehow um billions of years ago and our brains there's nothing in our brain which is similar to a reptilian brain um that, that's yeah just frustrates the hell out of me that there's i will um i will say that i use quite- oh no i appreciate you saying that so much mark i <laughs> because i probably use it more um as like a colloquial statement or something maybe that's not the best mm. term for it, but um but it's your basically it's the um idea that okay tell me as a neuroscientist you tell me um so when i think about like what i've done in therapy and what i understand about trauma right is that so we have these sort of visceral instinctive responses that happen more at like the brain stem right is that correct or no i mean there are physiological responses that happen at the brain stem, but they're driven by the more cortical regions of our brain okay so, so the like cortical regions that would actually drive those so it's like the way that I understood it, and I feel like I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm going on a detour here because now I'm just curious um, <laughs> because you called me out and I like that. I like that. I like knowing that I shouldn't be using that phrase. So, um, so there's sort of the idea that if we recognize the instinctive behavior and we can take a pause, take a beat, like give ourselves a second and we can rationalize through that. Is it really, I guess, about a part of your brain that does this versus that when you're instinctive versus actually rationalizing? So, yeah, I mean, the the, the reason I don't like the, the idea of the reptilian brain is that the it sounds as though we have this area of our brain which is like a reptile which is is nasty right it's just there to actually react to stuff and and there is no area of our brain that is like that um our brain has 
most of our brain is unconscious. Most of what our brain does is unconscious, and that's through habits. And so somewhere between 40 and 60% of the stuff we do every day is just habitual. It's just stuff that we've learned that it allows us to then concentrate on other things. And so that just happens habitually. And that's, if you like, un our unconscious part of our brain. And that's a majority of what we what, what we actually do. And so you've probably, a, a lot of people have set up habitual behaviours which aren't healthy or which result in negative thoughts or result in negative behaviours. But that's all learnt stuff that you've learnt during your childhood and, mm -hmm. and whatever years and so by stopping and reflecting on those you can actually then turn those around and say hey I don't, I don't want to think that anymore and then slowly change that because through heavy and learning it's the the cells that are stronger um and, and there's more of them wired up like changing your neural behavior. pathways essentially actually, yeah that'll change your neural pathways and therefore you'll be more likely to do the positive things than the negative things so it's a matter of actually um reflecting on our habitual behavior the stuff that we do automatically um, by actually slowing down and then that allows us to do more positive things but our brains don't have areas of them that that, that are like a reptile where we do nasty things or we, yeah. we just respond to the world around us the way a reptile would um, you know we're mammals and we have been mammals for billions of years and and therefore all of our brain is mammalian uh, which means that it's all you know the vast majority of mammals actually collaborate and and are living groups and like to spend time with each other and like to touch each other and lie in the sun together and do all yeah 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 things. well i appreciate i appreciate the the lesson um i will change i will change my turn of phrase moving forward i appreciate it on many levels this is one of those things where if this were a few years ago probably my ego would have gotten in the way of allowing this part of the conversation to Sorry, happen I didn't no no to. oh no no please do not apologize please do not apologize this is important right because if yeah. i'm going to say something and that's not like categorically or empirically correct. Um, you know, I would want somebody to say that. And I think that that's where doing this show has given me so much perspective too. It's like, I used to struggle a lot with acknowledging when I was wrong or feeling like constructive criticism. And over the years that waned quite a bit, but it made me feel hesitant to like really to say, yes, please tell me, educate me, right? Um, you know, I can acknowledge that maybe I said something wrong, but I am glad that we went down that path because I think a lot of people say a lot of things or think a lot of things that are not accurate and then we perpetuate that. And I don't want to be part of that in in the way that I communicate or what I'm sharing. So I, I appreciate it and there is zero need to apologize. I think it was an important part of the conversation to have. And frankly, um, a detour that I'm grateful for because this will stick with me for the remainder of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have, a, have another detour there? Because I think it's a really important point that you're making and that is that it's so important to be wrong, right? We, we actually don't learn anything if we're right, because if you're right, you already knew it. And so it's so important for us to actually be wrong, because when you make mistakes, you actually learn things. And I think it's something that we don't acknowledge enough, and we especially don't acknowledge in schools, because schools are all about kids getting stuff right. And if they're getting stuff right, they're not learning anything. And they actually need to be getting stuff wrong so that they can actually learn stuff. And so, you know, for example, kids get given tests, um, Tests are amazing learning opportunities. And if a kid, if, if a child or a teenager fails a, a lot of the tests, then that's an incredible 
actually positive opportunity for that child or that teenager to learn all that stuff that they actually got wrong because they got it wrong and then they can reflect on it. But we don't do that. What we do is we give them a test and then we mark them and we pigeonhole them and it's that level and that's it and we move on. Um, but actually getting stuff wrong is an incredible opportunity to actually learn because we only learn when we're wrong because if we're not wrong, then we're not learning anything because we already knew it. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that so much. It's uh, <laughs> so good. And it makes me think about something I had heard a few years ago when I was listening to a podcast about um, this, the guest had made a comment that we should be having the controversial conversations, because if we don't have them, then we're not going to learn to think differently. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with something that everybody or everything that somebody says, but it, it forces us to step away from our own perception and understanding and possibly knowing of things and observe how other people are interacting with certain things in their life or ways of the world and whatnot. And I feel like that's just another example of how valuable it is to have these types of connections. Because at the end of the day, if we sit here and we isolate ourselves, like we're not getting those perspectives, we're not learning how we're wrong, or where we could be right, or what other different ideas could be spreading. And I think that that's just such an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to collaboration as well. Because in my career, especially in tech, like you're not just doing something on your own. You're working with a whole team of people. And mm -hmm. I've learned from the designers. I've learned from my leaders. I've learned from the engineers. And the way that your combination of skill sets creates value is something that I think we have become used to, but we don't really recognize overtly. Like we just sort of acknowledge that these pieces of the puzzle, puzzle are necessary, but we don't, I don't think we highlight enough how those things work together to create the success. It's like, we just kind of go in and we do our jobs and that's the expectation. But one of the things that, excuse me, as a product manager, I've always really loved is working with user experience designers because it creates empathy for a user. And that's for me, that's how I got my, as much fulfillment as I could out of product was being like, this is how I connect with people is by understanding what they want to do and how to help them do that. And so the idea of collaboration being such um, a linchpin for humanity and how we continue onward is just, I mean, it's a, it's a no brainer or um, something else that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's why. Place. Yeah, why why the um, diversity within organisations is so important because you get all those different opinions when you've got a diverse workforce because they've all come from different backgrounds, they've all come from different you know lifestyles and whatever, and so you get lots and lots of different opinions being put in there. Of course, they all need to feel safe in that environment so they can actually you know make comments and, and be involved in the whole process. But we know. The more diverse an organization is, the more innovative and creative that organization can be and is, right? And productive as well, because of the fact that you've got all those different inputs and you've got those different um, viewpoints on whatever it happens to be that you're trying to develop. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I worked in HR tech for most of my career. And one of the things that really blew me away, because diversity can easily be a checkbox that a company is trying to, to cover, right? That's the unfortunate reality of it. But one of the things that really helped propel my interest in creating those more diverse schools of thought was learning more about accessibility for the disabled community and recognizing how much we do without consideration for an entire 17% of people. At least that's the last data point I knew a couple of years ago. But anyway, so it's like 
you have this ability to sort of look at what you're doing and say, oh, look, this is great. We've done all this stuff and here's all the success that we've had with it. But we don't like to look at the gaps. We like to point to all the things we've achieved. And so we like to point to what we got right. <laughs> but we don't want to look at what we got wrong to learn from that. And it's really yeah. challenging as somebody who works for these businesses, but I'm sure you work with organizations. Do you find that some of that is um where the most opportunity to learn is, is to like help these organizations shift their perspective about how they see collaboration and how they see the opportunities for growth within their organizations. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do a lot of work with the um, Institute for Sustainable Leadership, which their main emphasis is on the difference between a honeybee organization and a locust organization. And a honeybee organization is one that, that has collaboration and where everyone, you know, psychological safety and everyone feels um, as though they're, 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 um, they can be wrong and therefore, um, and that that actually contributes to making things better. And so it's a real emphasis on what are we doing wrong and how can we improve that and let's always improve. And it's not about let's always make bigger profits or let's make the share, shareholders you know more money, but it's about how can we improve so that everyone's happy within the organisation and, and we're actually uh, all working towards the same end point. And they study a lot of organizations that have been around for you know 100 years 150 years 200 years in Europe where you'll have multiple generations within the same same family who have all worked for this company because of how they all feel as though they're part of the company and they're all moving towards the same thing which is let's have a sustainable company that is really really good for our society and really good for 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 everybody within it so that my kids can come and work here as well when they get old enough and so on. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful way to actually think about the organisation. And these some of these organisations are huge, right? Organisations like Ducati um, and um, BMW and so on. Like these are, are multinational companies now, but that work around this honeybee leadership model where everyone contributes um, and everyone's rewarded for that, right? This is a big problem. Is In a lot of organisations, locust organisations, you you reward the CEO and you reward the top 1% and everybody else suffers, right, and doesn't have enough money to actually feed their kids and, you know, you know they have to all have to work extra jobs and all the rest of it. And so in a honeybee honey organisation, everyone benefits from the fact that the organisation is doing well so that they all want to contribute to the organisation so they want it to flourish more rather than being an organisation where, yeah, the top 1% are earning ridiculous amounts of money and then everyone else isn't. And so therefore they're not actually, they don't care, right? And then you have huge turnover and the cost of turnover is huge in an organisation, right? And so we should be thinking about this. Whereas these honeybee organisations, people don't leave because they love working there and they actually want to stay there. And so you don't have all those extra costs associated with onboarding and finding new staff and keeping staff and retaining staff and and and, and staff having sick leave and all the rest of it because they actually love working there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And that's what we need. Yes, 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 yes. A thousand times. Yes, I could not agree more. It definitely speaks to me on a personal level, because I've witnessed it firsthand. I've been in the small companies that sort of cannibalize their employees, and they just lose sight of what the real purpose is. And, you know, to that end, I think that gets back to the idea of what your motivations are too. you know, intrinsically, they're 
is, or sorry, extrinsically, there's a point of diminishing returns for a lot of people. Like I got to a point in my career where I was like, okay, I make this much money. I think that's a great amount of money to make. If I never made more than this, that would be fine. I'd be okay. Would I like to make more? Sure. Because that's just more security that I can have, but it's not the driving factor. And that's really was such a turning point for me when I got to the place of, I need to be driven by purpose, because if I'm not driven by purpose and recognizing by the way that my purpose is to connect with people was that it was unfathomable to me that like I could continue my career, drive myself up the corporate ladder, make all this money and feel some sense of like visceral satisfaction. It doesn't work like that. The intrinsic motivators are what ultimately have to be the drivers. And when people are struggling to get by when their basic needs aren't even being met, it's really hard to be driven by anything but that external motivation. And when you get back to the root of everything that you're doing with human connection, it it affects our emotions when our needs aren't being met. It affects our ability to connect with people because we feel disengaged, we feel disenfranchised. And I'm wondering in the work that you've done, either with organizations or the research and things that you've done, do you see a difference um, or have you studied any sort of difference in the way that somebody's economic status impacts like their ability to connect with people? It, it doesn't. Um, or maybe correlates to. to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't actually seem to. Some of the most connected people out there are, are people who, who don't have as much. I was I was at a school recently um, and, and it's an amazing school. It's in a very poor area of Sydney um, and, and where, you know, most people wouldn't want to drive through. Um, but they, they last year, the kids decided up, up north of here, uh, Lismore, there was huge floods and and one of the primary schools up there flooded and for 12 months they didn't have classrooms and so on. So this school here in this poor area of Sydney um, decided they, they would uh, raise funds to buy a uh, container, a shipping container, and then convert the shipping container into a library and then raise funds for have that then shipped up to Lismore so that if there are floods again, they could move the library um, for a primary school. Um, and so they raised all these funds to actually organise this. They've now, this year, they're working on raising funds for Sarah Leone um, to uh, have a, sh again, purchase a shipping container and fill it with rice because there's problems with getting rice in Sarah Leone as well. But every Thursday, um, all the uh, grandparents of, of these kids come in and they have a big cook-on, cook-off, where they cook huge amounts of food and then they deliver it to the homeless people in the area as well. And they, at the moment, they're also trying to raise funds to buy a van so that they can actually um, have the van go around and do it more times a day. So, I mean, and this is yeah, an area of Sydney which is very, very poor and very... Um, so, yeah... I, I almost feel as though the areas where people don't have as much money or resources, they're more collaborative and they're more connected because of the fact they need to be. Uh, whereas in areas where we're more affluent, uh, we tend to be less connected and there's more issues with mental health issues and there's all of these other problems in those areas because we're not as connected, because we don't need to be mm -hmm. as connected, which is a little sad for those it is, you know, it, it is. And I, 
I'm glad that you gave that context through the story that you have, because I feel like as I was asking the question and you were starting to answer, I was thinking, no, that makes total sense because we see people who have tremendous amounts of success and how many of those people have suffered, you know, from depression or anxiety or who have um, taken their lives by suicide. And it's like, there's not enough, right? Like there's not enough that could external validation or material things or whatever that could change that. And the thing that helps us, that saves us, that keeps us safe is that connection, that community. And I think about when I was in Peru for um, a couple of weeks, uh, right after I graduated college, and I was filming something with a friend of mine uh, for this nonprofit. And we were in this very, very poor city. And these kids were just kicking around a soccer ball. They had like hand-me-down clothes from probably like some North American country. And they're just like kicking a ball around, having a good time, smiling, laughing. Like they're not thinking, I don't have all of this stuff, right? They're making the most of what they have, understanding that they need, that is what they need. That is what you need. You need that sense of community and safety. And I feel like, you know, if we didn't know that all of this was possible, at our core, what would we really seek to find and have in our lives? And even just looking at, um, we've had a ton of wildfires in BC recently, and we're under a state of emergency. And my wife and I were going through and being like, okay, like, let's get go bags ready. Let's just make sure we have stuff if we need it. And she's like, I feel like this is just pointing out to me how much stuff we have that we don't need, you know, and not just not that it's stuff that we might not use, or maybe clothes that we would want to wear eventually. But it's like, but do we need it? Because if you don't need it, who cares? And I think we're trying to come back to that root of who we are, which is sort of the the core of where your studies, uh, where you find your studies. And it's like, if we have nothing else in this world, at the very least, we have each other. Absolutely. And, and that's where we end up, right? You can't take any of it with you. Um, and, and when I used to work at the hospice, you would see these people and and, and to be honest some of the saddest ones were the the guys who were CEOs and were you know had had these amazing careers but they didn't know their family and that you know you'd you'd talk to their kids um and they'd be like he he was an asshole and I'm not really that sad that he's passing away and all of this which is uh, it was interesting conversations because they felt guilty about the fact that they weren't sad about it but at the same time they wanted to get a lot of this out because of the fact that this was happening and and how they were feeling but you know it's yeah when we get to the end of our lives it's like it's not that we spent lots of time at work or that we had you know those extra four watches in the safe (laughs) or whatever it is or we we managed to fly into space on our own rocket or whatever (laughs) um or you know the crazy things that some of these people do um those things aren't what really matter right it's the person who's sitting beside you and holding your hand um, while you're going through this process and the person who's willing to yeah, spend time with you because of the fact you spent time with them for all those years. Yeah. Um, that's what really matters. Um, and, and, you know, uh, it's a funny thing to do, but I, I did a course a little while ago. It was actually during COVID because I needed to do something positive. Um, so I did a course where we we, we all uh, reflected on and then had to write our own obituaries, um, which was an amazing actual process to go through. I and bet. it was because you really went, hey, 
what do I want people to remember me for? Um, and it changed, you know, some of the things that I was doing um, for for the good, you know, because I was like, well, I don't need to be doing that stuff because uh, I've got enough. What I need to be doing is spending more time with family, spending yeah. more time with friends. And, yeah, uh, and that's a really interesting process to go through. I'd recommend it to everybody, right? Write, write your obituary now and then work out how you can get what your ideal obituary, not not what you think will be written <laughs> yeah. about you, but what you really want to be in your obituary when when it, when you actually pass away. Yeah. Um and then and then work towards that. That's such a great idea, Mark. I really respect where that comes from too, and just this self growth that you can achieve in doing that and recognizing those areas of opportunity. And as we're kind of rounding out the conversation here and thinking about the work that you're doing and that you've done, obviously you've got your book out now. I can't wait to check it out. But how do you see the future of the work you're doing with brain health and where you want that to go at this point? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I have yeah multiple other books on on the go at the moment. Um, I'm writing one with an ex principal, which is doing digital differently, which is all for for everybody about how to actually do it in a more positive way. Oh, cool. um, which which is a lot of fun. Yeah, he, he's he's an amazing guy. He's won you know, many international awards for teaching and all sorts of things. Um, and, and he actually has a huge foundation where they build schools um, in Asia. I think he's. He's built over 100, 100 schools over in Asia, um, and he, uh, yeah, it's really, really cool. Um, so that's been really fun. Um, and then I'm also writing a book um, with another friend um, around, yeah, how, how we can do things differently. So he's a psychologist who spent many years working um, in prisons with men um, and uh, now works with with men and teenage boys um, around a lot of the crises there that's going on. And so about changing that whole narrative about you know this ridiculous alpha male idea and that testosterone makes us aggressive and all the rest of it, where all the research actually shows men aren't aggressive. Men are trained to be aggressive. We're not actually aggressive by nature um, and we're collaborative by nature. And so, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting one as well. Um, and then with another friend who's... Um, he, he's older and he he's actually went over to Afghanistan when they first invaded Afghanistan and helped set up schools for uh, uh, girls um, in Afghanistan. But he also went to um, uh, Papua New Guinea after the tsunami hit Papua New Guinea uh, um, and worked with all the kids who lost their parents during the tsunamis. Um, and prior to that, he was working in India uh, with the train so in India, there was a big issue about 20, 30 years ago uh, where parents who couldn't afford their kids would just drop their kids off at train stations um, and just leave them there. And so he spent many years uh, working uh, with all these orphan kids in India. So he has yeah some amazing stuff to say. No um, kidding. Yeah, so I'm interviewing him uh, <laughs> at the moment, uh, which is really cool, and that'll be out hopefully. Uh, I don't know. That might take a little while. Well, feel I'm, free I'm to enjoying that process like to too much. If you'd like to be a podcast guest, you send him my information. That sounds like a fascinating story <laughs> to tap into. <laughs> He's an amazing guy, amazing, amazing, warm, wonderful person who's done some absolutely amazing stuff. It deserves a thousand medals for what he's done. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I've got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mark, I, you. You as well. Just such an amazing story. I love how 
you saw the opportunity in your own life to turn things around, to really evaluate where you wanted to go and to translate that, as you said, from the beginning, really into something where you could pay it forward and create this opportunity for other people to understand themselves and ourselves as a species better. And, you know, I think one of the things that we just all need to lean into is our connection with each other and our connection with ourselves. That's something that I learned is just, it's, it's the catalyst for being able to have stronger relationships with other people is really knowing yourself. And so I appreciate your time, your energy and the research that you're doing to help create a better world. And is there anywhere else that you would like people to find you and follow you? I know they can visit drmarkwilliams.com. But um, other than that, is there anywhere on social media or anything you want people to connect with you? Um, I am on social media as well, but I do have um, a free newsletter so they can sign up to my newsletter at drmarkbeams.com and they'll get yeah all of the notifications about everything else that's going on and amazing writings and so on. But yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well. If people are on LinkedIn, um, yeah, if they want to hit me up there um, and Perfect. I have a newsletter on there as well, but yeah. I write all the time. I like to write. <laughs> That's great. I, you know, I, the more that I talk to people, the more I just value our ability to communicate with each other and to be able to share these experiences and these thoughts. And you have just such a wealth of knowledge that I'm grateful to be privy to in even some small format. So thank you again for your time, Mark. Gang, you can visit drmarkwilliams.com, sign up for his newsletter and connect with him on LinkedIn if you want. And that's all for this episode of Food the Fuck. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.